Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Welcome, everyone, to uh, back to another Austin Institute event, another COVID-tied event. So as with our previous ones, we both have some very few people here in person. The limit in Austin is still 10. That's the max. Um, and then more people having joined us online. So we're, we're both simulcasting. You know, we're here in person and also online. And if this is your first Austin Institute event, our theme this semester is prudence. So a great deal of prudence is needed. And yet there's not a lot of attention paid. This is still a word that sounds fusty and old-fashioned. People used to name their daughters prudence and don't anymore because that sounds old school, you know. And so it's, but it's time to, to pay some attention to this. So we've looked at it in, uh, in, in science more generally and also in politics. And tonight, our focus area is an area where it's come to all of our acute attention in the last six to nine months of how much prudence is needed in health and medicine. And so for that, we are very pleased to have Dr. Stuart Wolf here with us. So I've been asked not to give the long bio. So I will give the short bio. And Dr. Stuart Wolf, MD, FACS, is Associate Chair of Clinical Integration and Operations, Chief of the Division of Surgical Subspecialties, and Professor for the Department of Surgery and Perioperative Care at Dell Medical Center, Dell Medical School, University of Texas. So without further ado, Dr. Wolf. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Stewart. Hats off to Austin Institute for this wonderful series on prudence. It's certainly a hard act to follow the outstanding talks that we've heard so far. I will tell you that I have borrowed liberally from my two predecessors, Dr. Stewart and also Dr. Roberts. I, I need to tell you I'm a little disoriented right now. I've been doing so many Zoom meetings. I'm used to seeing, watching my talking head as I speak, and I don't see that talking head right now, so I'm a little bit discombobulated. Um, I do have to make a disclaimer. Uh, the material I'll be discussing tonight is completely my own opinion. Uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of or representing Dale Medical School or the Seton Ascension Health Network where my clinical practice is located. Um, I'm a surgeon. I'm a clinician. I've been trained in school and residency. Residency is the uh, period of training you do after medical school for a few years to learn a, special, a specialty. I've been trained to take care of one patient at a time. Even in my leadership position in the medical school and the hospital, I take primarily care of one patient at a time, or maybe at most a small group of people who share similar characteristics. But the COVID pandemic, as was alluded to earlier, has called on all healthcare workers, and especially those in leadership positions, to think about public health, the health of the entire population, not just one person. Now, there are master's degrees and doctorates in public health. Mine is simply a battlefield promotion. Indeed, COVID has brought public health to the forefront of public discourse in general, in a way that, at least in the recollection of my lifetime, is unprecedented. It's this complex interplay of thinking about health of the individual and of the public health between personal freedom and societal responsibility that we're going to explore this evening. Importantly, we'll be coming back to that virtue of prudence and talking about how that virtue is integral to making the complex choices in this space. 
I do meet, need to mention briefly another intersection uh, that I will touch on tangentially since it cannot be ignored in the current environment, and that's of the intersection of politics and science. Although they seem to be odd bedfellows, if the scientists among us, and I would count myself in that group, want our expertise to be considered when making public policy, then we have to figure out the politics too, and frankly, that's part of why I'm here tonight. So what is our goal tonight? Our goal this evening is to help all of us gain insight into how we prudently make decisions related to public health. Let's start first with an example of health-related decision-making at the individual level, the personal level, and from there we'll build up to public health. There's a strategy in medicine called shared decision-making. The concept is that the healthcare practitioner provides information to the patient, information about the goals of the various treatments being considered and the nature of those treatments. The information needs to be provided prudently, making sure it's balanced and complete. The next step, and this is critical, is to help the patient recognize their values and explore how their values might impact how they weight, how, what importance they give to those bits of information. And then with all that in mind, the healthcare practitioner helps the patient make a prudent choice, making a decision that uses the correct information and rightly incorporates the patient values. Let me give an example of this from my own field. I'm a urologist. We deal with kidney stones. Let's say you have a kidney stone, okay? It's causing a lot of pain. The only way to get rid of that stone is a, and, and the pain is a procedure. Let's say there are two procedures to choose from, okay? There's one procedure that's very effective. It's the most effective treatment we have. But it's invasive. The treatment itself causes some temporary pain, and there's a risk of complications. There's a second procedure that is less invasive does not cause pain, has lower risk, but as you probably could have guessed, is less effective. It's your choice. It's actually pretty simple in this case. If your value is that you want to get rid of the stone above all else, and you are not particularly concerned about a little more pain or risk of complications, you do the first treatment. Or maybe you value safety. If you value safety, then you're willing to take the lower success rate to avoid the risk of complications, and you choose the second treatment. Very intelligent very thoughtful, very prudent people would assimilate the exact same information, but based upon their values, might make opposite decisions. It's great, fantastic, just the way it should be. So now let's take this framework of personal decision-making that we've outlined and use it to understand prudence in public health, which is more complicated. Now, there are four steps in prudent health decision-making related to public health, and I borrowed a little bit from, from Dr. Stewart on these. These steps are a little more discreet than perhaps in the individual sphere. Number one, use reliable sources of information. Number two, assess the certainty of the information. Number three, make the decision, and that's where you have to incorporate values. And number four, create a public policy that implements that decision. So again, that first step is to be prudent about our data sources. Thus, the first job of an expert is to give us accurate data. But how do we know what's accurate if we're not the experts ourselves? Who do we listen to? Well, we need to be careful about our sources. We need to assess their reliability. If the question at hand is about the transmissibility of an infectious disease such as COVID, I am thinking that the accuracy of information from Dr. Fauci is probably better than the Facebook group called Uncle Bob's Virus Blog. Conversely, if we want information about the economic impact of closing businesses, I'm going to look to an economist, not a medical doctor. 
or maybe an experienced school administrator or someone who's done research on education when I'm trying to look at the impact of online learning. Prudence requires that we consider all relevant and trustworthy data sources, but only the relevant and trustworthy data sources. We need to avoid getting misled by false information. And with regards to the information we do consider, remember that we need to consider even those sources that may be inconvenient to our pre-existing notions. So the second step I mentioned was to understand how certain or confident we are about the information. Now, when physicians communicate with each other about clinical practice guidelines, these are the kind of the menus that we help write it to help guide in a broad way treatment. We do exactly that. We communicate about the certainty of the data. When we provide a guideline interprofessionally, we include a GRADE, and it's actually literally the acronym GRADE, G-R-A-D-E, that tells us the certainty of the data. Other physicians who then look at those guidelines, they then consider that reported certainty when deciding how to apply that guideline to their patient. You know, unfortunately, that nuancing about certainty does not fit well in our current era of three-second sound bites and seven-word headlines. Now, it's not fair to slowly blame the media for this, I think. I mean, after all, the media are selling a product and we're the ones buying it. But to be fair, the experts could be taken to task on this insufficiency as well. Think about the last COVID-19 press conference you listened to. Did you hear anyone say, we think you should do this, but that recommendation is based on evidence that's not really certain, and if there's more research, it might change our recommendation. We don't hear that. This is really important. If I'm trying to decide whether or not to send my child to school, I need to know how certain the scientist is when they tell me that the risk of COVID transmission for 10-year-olds is this or that, or, or how certain the school superintendent is about the efficacy of Zoom instruction. We need to know these things. Okay, so now the decision-making. That's the third step in the public health decision-making. We need to weigh all the information from the trustworthy and appropriate data sources. We consider the certainty and we come to a prudent decision. This, again, is where our values come into play. But before we get into that process, I want to talk a little more about how that decision should be shared with the public. And I think this is important. I think the officials who are charged with talking to us about public policy regarding the public health should share the process of decision-making. This would help a lot, but it usually doesn't happen. I think that the job of our experts when facing a public health challenge such as the COVID pandemic experts in health, economy, public policy, all the relevant experts, their job is actually the exact same as my job was when I did shared decision-making with my patient. It's the same thing. First, give people the necessary information. This includes what are the goals of the public health initiative as related to the current challenge. So, for example, in the COVID epidemic, it may be uh, their goal is to minimize the impact of COVID while not unduly burdening the economy. We need to give information about the strategies that might be used, such as in the COVID pandemic, hand-washing masks and social distancing. And finally, we need to give information about the metrics that might be used to determine how we go forward or backward on the application of those strategies. And then, all the information needs to be delivered in a way that people can relate it to their values. The problem is that experts and public health officials don't often do these things. They don't share the whys and they don't speak to the values that underlie their decisions. We get directives. We are told what to do. Believe me, I understand the temptation to do that. I think we all do. But we're not provided the information in a way that helps us understand why the decisions are made 
and help us determine our response. So we're, I'm already kind of getting a little bit into the fourth step again, which was making the, the policy. It can be really hard. And in addition, remember, if you failed in any of the first three steps, if you've gathered misleading data, if you haven't made a good decision, if you haven't communicated it well, any of those, you're probably going to fail with your fourth step as well. Now, let's work through an example here that I think is going to be helpful to, to kind of demonstrate how we go through this process. Um, let's take the very common issue of wearing face masks in public to reduce the spread of COVID-19. To clarify, I'm talking about the concept that wearing a mask prevents me from spreading COVID to someone else. I'm not talking about the concept that me wearing a mask prevents me from getting COVID. That actually it doesn't happen. It's not a thing unless you're wearing an N95 mask. I will also not touch upon the phenomena that face masks have become politicized. It's been explored in prior talks in this series. I won't, also will not address the early, often contradictory and vacillating government recommendations in the early months of the pandemic, um, which vary dramatically across nations and continents. Let's simply walk through how someone might make a prudent decision about when to wear a face mask based upon current evidence and based upon your individual value system, or in the case of a public policymaker, the value system of society at large. Before we start, though, we do have to agree on one assumption that underlies any decision, any discussion about COVID-19. We have to agree that COVID-19 is real, that it has an adverse effect on individuals and society. It can hurt and even kill people. If you think that COVID-19 is not really dangerous, then the next few minutes don't apply to you. I think you can still get something from this talk, but not from this particular example. So in terms of that first step, the evidence, we're going to frame this as a cost-benefit assessment. It's a common way that we look at health care decisions. I won't use as evidence research that has involved any fancy mathematical modeling. Don't worry about that. Such modeling can actually be quite useful in helping to get us to the truth before the data is quite ripe enough to get us there, but it's dependent upon assumptions that we shouldn't be looking at now. The best evidence in science, in medicine, in health, comes from what are called randomized controlled trials. Okay, This is when one group gets assigned to one condition, such as wearing masks, and another group, which is exactly the similar in every other way, gets assigned to another condition, such as not wearing masks. And then we can be highly certain if we see any observed differences between those two groups that the condition, that the difference is associated with the condition that we randomly assigned. Unfortunately, we don't have that level of evidence regarding face masks. But we do have observational studies and some very large ones. An observational study is essentially a natural experiment where one group does something that another group does not, and we compare the groups, and we try to figure out if differences exist, and if the differences do exist, is it due to that something that was different between the two? We try to account for variations between the groups, but that's actually the main problem with observational studies, is that there may be variations between groups that we can't account for, or perhaps don't even know about. So first of all, now let's talk about the evidence for face masks. That wearing a face mask reduces the transmission of COVID-19 from the wearer to someone nearby is plausible. There's a biological explanation as to why face masks work. It's actually quite simple. They were tarred, to at least some extent, the distribution of, in space of the respiratory droplets that I'm breathing out that can carry the virus. It doesn't need to be 100%, but it does reduce the count. Now, I understand that we can watch videos on YouTube where someone can spray an aerosol through a piece of cloth 
and say that, see, the aerosol passes through. I get that. But real experimental studies, not a YouTube video, clearly show that the count of droplets of the size that would be expected to carry the virus, the size that are generated by talking, sneezing, coughing, etc., are reduced when passed through a cloth mask. I must admit that I do find it moderately humorous that some of the same people who insist that masks are not effective at reducing the transmission of COVID-19 also insist that wearing a mask restricts their intake of oxygen so they can't wear them. The size of a respiratory droplet versus a molecule of oxygen. Really? So, here are the data. Um, on June 3rd, a very useful article was published in The Lancet. The Lancet's one of the preeminent medical journals. It was a meta-analysis, which is an article that uses a very defined and rigorous criteria to gather and combine all the good information about a topic. This one had the very long title, and I'm going to read it to you in case you want to look it up. Physical distancing, face masks, and eye protection to prevent person-to-person -person transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, a systematic review and meta-analysis. June 3rd, Lancet. There are many authors from many international universities of excellence. The authors identified 172 observational studies across 16 countries and six continents. There were 44 comparative studies in healthcare and non-healthcare settings. The total number of patients in all the studies was almost 26,000, but they were all observational studies. There were no randomized trials. Now, I'm not gonna get into the weeds here, okay? But the bottom line is that wearing a face mask was associated with a reduction of the transmission of COVID virus by 15%, one five, 15%. What that means is that if a large group of people were walking around not wearing masks and there was some COVID about, maybe 100 might contract COVID. If the same people were in the same situation, everything was the same except they were wearing masks, only 85 would get COVID. That's what a 15% reduction is. Now, in my estimation, that's not a huge amount of reduction, but in the big picture, it's actually a significant factor. Now, very importantly, these data do not tell us what to do. This is just informing us what might be one benefit of wearing face masks. And of course, there are other benefits of face masks, and more importantly, face masks are just one of the many strategies to reduce the transmission of COVID-19. The data don't make the decision. We make the decision interpreting the data. Okay, so now, what was our first step again? Assess the reliability. I would argue you can't get a whole lot more reliable than The Lancet. Sure, any scientific source, any scientific journal is fallible. Most journals, including The Lancet, have published retractions. A retraction is when they publish an article and at some later point they say, whoa, 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 I'm sorry, we were wrong. Uh, that science was bad. It was incorrect. Ignore the article. Very interestingly, The Lancet recently retracted an article about hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. <laughs> so clearly they are not perfect, but they're a pretty good journal. All right, the second step, remember that? It was the confidence in the data. Well, again, these aren't randomized controlled trials. I admitted to that. They aren't the highest level of evidence that we have. Frankly, a randomized controlled trial and a face mask wearing in the COVID era would not be possible. That being said, these observational data, which with the large numbers we have, are pretty strong. Let me give you an example of another study that was published since the Lancet article, so it wasn't included. Um, uh, in this article, they looked at the rate of COVID-19 cases before and after the mandating of face masks in 15 states in the District of Columbia. And they compare that to the states where there was no mandating masks. That is, so it's kind of a you know, natural experiment. 
They controlled for all other factors as best they could. Controlling for that, the COVID case rate three weeks later after the order was about 2% lower in the states that mandated masks. Extrapolating that 2% over time, that's about the same order of magnitude as the Lancet article. Again, not a randomized controlled trial, but pretty solid nonetheless. Now, I need to be fair. There are negative studies, too. There are studies that show that mask wearing doesn't impact the transmission of viral illnesses. But overall, the body of evidence suggests that it is more likely than not that wearing a face mask reduces to some extent the transmission of COVID-19. So to summarize the evidence regarding the benefits, that the public wearing of masks reduces the transmission of COVID-19 is both plausible, there's a biological explanation that makes sense, and likely, large observational studies suggest that masks do reduce transmission. Great, so that's the benefit of masks. There's a benefit. But determining that there's a benefit, even a great one, does not mean that we have to wear masks. We still need to assess the costs as part of our decision-making and then determine how our values impact how we weigh the costs and the benefits. Okay, the cost of wearing a mask includes not only the financial cost of the mask, which is fairly trivial, but also the adverse effect on the wearer. To be clear, masks do not increase the risk of getting COVID-19. They don't worsen any current diseases you may have. There's no adverse effect on respiration or breathing, except perhaps if you're on supplemental oxygen. The adverse effects on the wearer are inconvenience and discomfort. But we must recognize that this inconvenience for some people is not trivial. Masks undoubtedly impair quality of life. We can't feel the fresh air on our face. It's hard to converse, hard to communicate. Sometimes we can't even recognize each other if you're wearing a mask. Believe me, I've been in the operating room wearing a mask two to four days a week for the last 30 years. Am I used to wearing a mask? Sure. Would I like to stop wearing a mask? Absolutely. So, summarizing the evidence. The cost of wearing a mask, inconvenience and discomfort. The benefit of wearing a mask, reducing transmission of COVID-19 to others. Okay, so now the third step. But before we move on to that, I want to point out something that's kind of interesting about the risks, about the cost and benefits in this particular situation. It's different than from other situations in public health. Here, for mask wearing, the cost and the benefit go to different parties. The cost is borne by the individual, the person wearing the mask, but the benefit accrues to everyone else, the people around you. This is different from many other health measures. And just as an example, some classic ones, drinking fluoridated city water to prevent cavities, using effective sewage systems to prevent spreading disease, wearing seatbelts, wearing motorcycle helmets. These are all public health interventions. In these examples, the same person bears the cost and accrues the benefit. So now let's apply this to the person's underlying value systems that are so important in this decision-making. In the examples I just gave, the values that inform the decision are inward-facing ones. What is my tolerance of personal risk? How do I feel about me getting dental cavities or suffering a traumatic brain injury? How do I feel about ingesting an artificially introduced chemical into my water or being told that I have to wear a helmet on a hot day? Things like that. But to make a prudent decision about the healthcare issue of wearing face masks to reduce the transmission of COVID-19, the values that we must consider are outwardly directed ones. 
In this case, since someone other than the person bearing the cost gets the benefit, how we value the virtue of charity is important. Charity would suggest that we can bear a small inconvenience personally for the benefit of reducing illness in others. Thus, in my estimation, if we value charity, then the prudent health decision, the one that is consistent with both a carefully considered cost-benefit analysis and consideration of personal values, is to wear a face mask in public. Okay, now the hard part, creating the public policy to enact the decision. Here we have another consideration, the legal principle of undue burden. Does requiring a mask place an undue burden on members of society? Which members should be required? Is it too burdensome or restrictive of one's fundamental rights? If the policymakers have decided that mask wearing is good for society and that it doesn't place undue burden on the citizens, then how do they, we, implement that decision? Mandatory masks? Recommendation only? Where? When? How? Just to remind you, the current Austin order is for, quote, some form of covering that fits snugly over the nose and mouth, dot, 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 when outside his or her residence. There are a number of exceptions, such as eating or drinking or exercising outdoors and many others. Clearly, this, the public policy implementation part is really hard. Now, I spent a few minutes on that example about face masks. That actually took a while. So we could suss out all the details and help you work through what this decision-making process is. But when you think about it, that was a pretty easy public health decision. To wear a face mask or not, really not a big deal. Politicized, highly politicized, absolutely. But once you work it out, it really shouldn't be that hard to do. But now we're faced with a lot more difficult public health decisions. The toughest one, at least until a vaccine is developed and we have to deal with the immense challenge of trying to develop herd immunity in a population that is very much not a herd, is the really difficult balancing act of reducing the impact of COVID-19 on our citizens while reopening our economy. I regret to inform you I do not have the answer for you tonight. But the same principles that we explored in discussing face mask wearing are the same ones that we will use to make this difficult decision. First, what are the potential benefits of some of the current limitations on our life in terms of reducing COVID-19? What's the evidence for social distancing, both inside and outside? They're different. How close? How far? Is that with the mask or without? What activities are we talking about? Are we talking about sitting at a desk in an office? Are we talking about drinking in a crowded bar? What about duration of contact? Surface cleaning, hand washing, all that stuff. Secondly, what are the costs of those same limitations? Not the benefits, not the costs. We really need to think about the cost, not just to ourselves, but the cost to our neighbor. I personally am doing fine with Zoom meetings and providing care via telehealth to my patients. My quality of life is fantastic right now. But the bar owner, the service staff in a comedy club, the young kids trying to go to school, kindergarten, they're getting hurt really badly. Financially, the stock market looks great right now, right? Wonderful. But there's no doubt that lots of people are hurting. We have the highest unemployment in generations only nine months after we had the lowest unemployment in only 50 years. Third, we have to make a decision based upon the balance of those benefits and costs. And doing so means incorporating values and priorities that we need to use to weigh those factors. And then finally, we have the challenging task of policy implementation. So, sorry, y'all. No easy answer on the particular decision about reopening the economy and 
keeping COVID tamped down. That is the great public health debate for the next six months. But I can only hope that I've succeeded in giving you a framework. Benefits, costs, values, prudence to help you consider public health decisions. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.